In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Matthew 3. Again. I want to touch on one idea in Matthew 3, and it's also repeated in Matthew 4. And that is the wilderness. There's a simple proverb with deep spiritual truth. It's Proverbs 27, verse 7. One who is full loathes honey, but he who is hungry finds every bitter thing sweet. So the full soul loathes honey. Like, who doesn't loathe that is the idea. Like, this is the good stuff. You want it, but when you're full, you don't need it. But when you're hungry, you will grab for anything. And sometimes you wish you didn't grab for that that you did when you were hungry. This proverb touches on a truth, touching on something we understand physically, to say that this is the case spiritually. That if I don't leave my soul full of Christ, I will crave and feed upon creation itself instead. The more that we desire creation, the less we desire Christ. That's a truth that we must understand and we underestimate in our day and age. Is that if I desire creation more than I desire Christ less. So we need to know where to aim and direct our desires. And we will see why. Um, there's a guy, there's a, a John of the Cross was a Spanish monk who was imprisoned during the Inquisition. So he was a good guy. And he is like the 16th century, I believe. And uh, he has some very profound writings about um, the development of the soul. And he said this, that in order for one to begin to journey toward God, their desires for the created things must be burned and purified from all that is creature. So my desires must be unglued, unattached from the things that are creaturely. In that fire of the love of God, they will burn. And in this purgation, the devil flees away, for he has no power I'm sorry, for the devil has power over the soul only when it is attached to things that are corporeal and temporal. Or in other words, the devil only has power over us when we are devoted to created things. So when my desire is going there, my attention is going there, and I'm giving myself to it and wanting it, I am now giving, I'm running from the safety and protection of the presence of God. And so now the passions of the flesh and the vices and sins can enter into me. The devil has me where he wants me. This is why we say the more that we desire creation, the less we desire Christ. The full soul loathes honey. We want to be full of Christ. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to talk about this tonight um, because Matthew takes us to the wilderness in chapters 3 and 4. And we are in a season as a church that is the wilderness. We've been in an interesting season communally, um, but we're also in an interesting season in our Christian sense of time. This is the fourth week of Lent. 
We have not even met once, at least like in our normal setting and environment, uh, once during Lent. So here we are halfway through it, and I'm reminding you or informing you we're in the middle. This is the fourth week. Um, And it's easy for people to kind of cringe when they hear Lent because we have certain conceptions, preconceived conceptions about it that are completely wrong. Sometimes we think that this is a season where we have to start doing more because God demands more. Lent's a time for me to get my act together, for me to do a lot more stuff because, well, I got to please God. This is the wrong idea. Lent is actually a time when I stop doing more and let God start pouring in more. I have to let go. And I have to stop so that he, in his eternal life-giving flow, can come in and through me. That's what Lent is about. It's a pausing time to realize that I don't need more spirituality in my life. I mean, you might need to pray more and stuff. Like, that's never a bad thing. But I don't need more of getting God's attention. I need less of trying to do that. And I need more of surrendering myself to him who's already pursuing me and already loving me. And that's where... Uh, Matthew chapter three and four are going to come into play. And this is essentially what I want us to see is that the spiritual life and growth is more about subtraction than it is about addition. I grow through subtraction. I grow by letting go and giving up, not by working harder or doing more. So addition, addition is not what we're after. Subtraction. Matthew three. In the days, in those days, John the forerunner came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he of whom it was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, Isaiah 40 verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptizing to him in the Jordan. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Then in chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, or the Greek, the Greek tempt and test are the same in Greek. It's the same Greek word, so you can read tempt, test. Sometimes it's contextual, sometimes it's whatever makes more sense to you in the moment. Um, he was tempted or tested by the devil. And after 40 days of fasting and 40 nights, he was hungry. Okay. Chapters three and four. We've been going through Matthew, so you understand how the flow has been. We are introduced to Christ, actually not directly, but through his genealogy, his people. That's how people meet Christ is through his people. And then we looked at his birth. We talked about the importance of the virgin birth. And we looked at uh, Joseph learning how to deal with changes in life. Uh, We looked at how... um, how to read scripture to lead us to Christ in chapter 2, and the narratives of Christ being uh, 
saved from Herod, which is like a pattern of the Exodus story. Pharaoh trying to kill the babies. Herod's trying to kill the babies. And then we came to chapter 3, which we covered uh, more in its fullness in, last week when we were with um, Calvary Chapel Bible College. Um, but this is how we see Jesus. And this is where he comes. He comes in the wilderness. And it's very clear, isn't it, that we're told three times with not uncertain terms, that the wilderness is the intentional setting here. John went into the wilderness preaching. Isaiah said, a voice will come from the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Jesus then, being baptized in the wilderness, then goes deeper into the wilderness, led by the Spirit to be tested. Wilderness moments are a huge part of our lives. And one of the things Matthew's immediately leading us into is saying, this, if you want to grow, this is where you will grow. You need some time in the wilderness. Because the wilderness is a place of subtraction, not a place of addition. Lots is stripped from us, and we must find our way with less than we normally have, which you can do one of two ways. Miserably try to make things work on your own or turn to the only one you have left, God. Amen. So we are invited to the wilderness. Um, the wilderness becomes a geographical metaphor for this 40 days of Lent. Israel, 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness. Here we are, middle point of our 40 days of less or starting, either one, of less. Deuteronomy 8 verse 2 said this about the wilderness. This is Moses reviewing Israel's 40 years there. He said, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Why? Why did he lead them 40 years to the wilderness? That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. This testing is what the wilderness is for. We're thrown out of our normal context. We're stripped from things maybe we're used to, and we're put there in this place to see what is in our hearts. What am I going to turn to? In the absence of created things that I love, whether they be uh, certain people who make me feel good about myself, or this food, or it's television, or other media, or it's what I wear, or the things that I have, or the comforts of my home, or whatever these things are, these are taken away, that's your wilderness. And there, we find out what's in the heart. Do we seek more of God in the absence of stuff, or do we find ourselves wanting stuff in the absence of stuff? Just being rid of stuff doesn't purify you. The poor man could covet money more than the rich man can. It's the absence of yearning and desiring the created world that will bring us into a clearer vision of who God is. So the wilderness is this place of testing. Now, this sometimes means that we are stripped with, uh, we have no senses or feelings for God. God doesn't seem close. So sensorially, spiritually speaking, like, where is he? 
Um, the physical world around us is in some way stripped. Maybe we're going through surgery or an illness and we've lost our health, or we have gone through a car accident and we don't have a car, or we um, are voluntarily choosing too fast and withgo the comforts of some things that we like to eat all the time. Like There's different ways that we are stripped, and these are times of testing where are our hearts. This is normal. This does happen. Sometimes you do it voluntarily. That's what Lent is for. It's a time to say, I'm going to voluntarily enter the wilderness. But sometimes God will take you there whether you wanted to or not. And C.S. Lewis warns us in the screw tape letters not to find this unusual. That he, God, will sometimes make it feel like he's left us so that we can learn how to walk. So that we can learn how to pray even when the feelings aren't there. So we can seek him because we've learned that nothing else compares to him. These things have been stripped away. Um, He relies, Lewis says, he relies on these low points more than the high points to make us into the creatures he wants us to be. So here's how the wilderness tests us. It tests us in two ways. It tests us, as we've said, through stripping, taking things away. But God only does that, not because he hates his created world. He just doesn't want you to love it more than him. He strips these things away so that we can be renewed, made new. It is a death and resurrection pattern, which is what this time of year is all about. We die with Christ so that we can be raised with Christ. So the wilderness strips us. Um, John of the cross said this about our attachments for the created world. And this, I found this incredibly well stated. I could never say this better myself. I could probably change his old fashioned wording a little bit, but the concept I could never actually say. He says that the affection and attachment which the soul has for creatures renders the soul like to those creatures. So if your obsession with, with life is certain people, you're going to render your soul like these people. If it's, if it's greed and having stuff, your soul is going to be rendered to these things. If it's entertainment, if it's a political position, if it's uh, the desire for different stage in life, a different career, like it, whatever we're setting our soul on, it's going to start to take on these qualities he's saying. So here's how he goes on. He says, the greater your soul's affection, the closer is the equality and likeness between your soul and the thing you love. So the greater the affection, the more likeness it will have. For love, for love of, uh, oh, for love creates a likeness between them that which loves and that which is loved. And thus, he that loves a creature becomes as low as that creature and in some ways lower than that creature. For love not only makes the lover equal to the object of his love, but even subjects him to that love. So as we set our desires on things in the world, we actually stoop ourselves from the most high God to the things of the world. And then he says, there's a point where you can actually go beneath the things of the world. This is a decreation movement. We're undoing ourselves through our affections, our desires, and our sins. Because, And you've seen this in a dramatic sense. Someone who's given themselves to numbing out pain or forgetting things that hurt or distracting themselves or simply the pleasures of alcohol can end up actually not only becoming equal with alcohol, but becoming servants to alcohol, right? 
So when we love something, we not only become equal with it, but we actually get to a point where we give ourselves to it and call it master. So then he continues. Hence, in the same way, it comes to pass that the soul that loves anything else becomes incapable of pure union with God and transformation in him. Because God is calling us up into union with him. This is what he wants, but it's impossible to do this if we keep holding ourselves down with, I like this too, or I like this instead. So the wilderness takes us to a place where we are stripped from these things. So that you will find out real quick. Oh, it's not here. I need it. And you find out where your lusts are or your desires are. But in that moment, you choose either to yearn and yearn and yearn and deform your soul. Or we realize, wait a minute. What a gift. It's not here. I didn't realize I was so attached to this. I didn't realize how much it meant to me until I lost it. So now I'm going to turn myself to the one my soul truly loves. Give myself wholly to him so that I can be unified and created in his likeness. That's why the wilderness strips us. It can be hard, but unless there's spiritual guidance from the scriptures telling us that this is normal and God uses this, then we will never see it as anything other than miserable and complain like the Israelites in the wilderness did. What do you mean we don't have leeks, melons, and onions anymore? We miss the the chain franchise restaurants of Egypt. And then they said, all we have is this manna. All we have is this manna? Do you know where manna came from? It came from heaven itself. It came from God concocted the most perfect granola bar, if you will, (laughs) to sustain them in their wilderness wanderings. We read in Deuteronomy that they neither their clothes and their sandals never wore out. They didn't grow tired. He fed them with the bread from heaven. It's so holy that they didn't even have a name for it. Manna means what is it? We can't name it. And then God commands Moses to put some of it, one of the only things that went into the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, manna. Why? To remember the people that the manna came from God's own presence. That's where it came from. And why did they not see it as enough? Because in their loss, they yearned for what they lost. And God was trying to get them free from that so they could yearn for him. So when you have things stripped or you find yourself in the wilderness, resist the temptation to focus on what you don't have or what you've lost or the bummer or to have people have misery for you. Resist that because God uses these to purify us. It's purgation by removing, it's surgery, it's removing stuff. So we tend to go through life with this idea of I've got it. I've got this. Like, I can project who I want to be. I can promote who I think I am. And I can protect this identity I've worked hard to create. And we go, most of our actions and our thoughts are fueling this concept of promoting, projecting, and protecting this image of myself and what I want people to think of me. Well, in the wilderness, you no longer can project, promote, and protect. You're like at a loss of who am I. And yes, it's terrible. But God uses these to rebuild us because we were projecting, promoting, and protecting the wrong things. How long does this last? I think God lets us in the wilderness until we let go of what he wanted us to let go. 
And brothers and sisters, this is part of the hardship of being a Christian, is if you really want Christ, you might be in that wilderness for a long time because God loves you too much to let you out of it if you haven't let go of your idols. And that's hard. Like, we're told all the time, Christianity, your life's better than it ever has been before. Oh, yeah. It does get better because initially you let go of things, but there's a time when it's time to grow up to the next level and you've gradually accumulated junk on your journey. And God's like, all right, time for spring cleaning. And he kicks us out into the wilderness and you could be there for a long time. That's not a good Christian life. You know a lot of miserable Christians, don't you? Who make it feel like Christianity is a chore. Well, that's because they're living in the wilderness and they're just going through the circles and they've forgotten how good God is because they're, they're carrying all this luggage with them through the wilderness. God's like, I want you in the promised land, but I love you too much to not let you see what you are actually loving or let you love it if you want to love it. So how long does the wilderness last? Until we learn to lose until we learn to suffer, until we learn to give up and surrender and say, okay, I get it. Everything I thought I had going on in life is not actually in my control. Self-sufficiency must be relinquished because God is not into self-sufficiency. He didn't save Brandon so that Brandon can be a self-made man. We're told this in our culture. Our parents try to create us in these people that can be self-made people, right? Get off of my... Pay, uh, my uh, make a stop bill I, I can't think right now um budgeting make a stop budgeting for you being in our house go and be your own like sufficient adult um yes but god if you look at the trinity which we touched on very slightly last week the trinity is a three-person relationship the father is the father because of his relationship to son and spirit they're pouring glory and love into him and he receives it the son is the son because of the father and son pouring into him and him receiving it. And so forth. Each member of the Trinity is a received identity. They are because they're loved, glorified, and adored by the others. This is what God's pulling us into. This is why we heard at the end of chapter 3 when Jesus comes up out of the waters and we're introduced to the Trinity, we hear, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. This is received identity. Jesus knows he doesn't have to go and make it happen to be God's beloved son. And nor do you or I. We receive in the wilderness. We receive in that place of stripping whose we are. I am not self-sufficient. I am an interbeing. I am who I am because I am in Christ and Christ is in me. Amen. That's interbeing. My identity is an exchange. It's a received identity, not a made identity. So the wilderness ends when we become dependent on God and who he makes us, not who I make me or what the things I love and hold around me make me. So the wilderness strips us, but the wilderness also, never forget this, a whole reason we're being stripped is so that we can be renewed. The wilderness renews us. In the Old Testament, the wilderness is a huge, huge theme. And it, it comes up again in the beginning of the Jesus story. 
Um, remember, the wilderness is where God initiates a relationship with his people Israel. He calls them out of Egypt, and that's when he calls them my son. In the prophets, they refer to Mount Sinai as being when God made a wedding vow to his people. Uh, in Exodus, he refers to it as the covenant. There's a contractual, a promising relationship between the creator and these people, and they're now his. There was a birth that happened Something was made. A people were created. A covenant was initiated there in the wilderness. But they also had to renew this relationship because they walk out on God. And so they go into exile. And that's when the prophets step in and say, okay, Israel, God hasn't quit on you. He will remake his relationship with you. There will be a renewal And guess where it will happen? In the wilderness, where it all started. It's going back. Now, there's lots of Old Testament passages that point to this, but I thought I would just narrow it down to three that seem the most vivid. Uh, Isaiah 43, verse 19. Isaiah 43, 19. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. I'm doing a new thing, and this is where I will do it, where you least expect it, in the wilderness. Isaiah 51, verse 3. 51, verse 3. The Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the voice of song. There the wilderness that Israel lives in will once again bloom like the Garden of Eden. What a promise. God is doing new stuff in the wilderness. And Hosea chapter 2 verse 14. Hosea 2 14. Here's that. um, Hosea is that book about how Israel's like a prostitute and betrays God, her husband, but he's going to win her back. And where is that going to happen? You guessed it. Hosea 2 verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, Israel, and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And there shall she answer as in the days of her youth, As at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt, I will remake my relationship with her and heal it in the wilderness. So why do we go to the wilderness? The wilderness is stripping our attachment to created things so that God can blossom a new creation in us. A new creation will blossom. He is into making gardens grow in the wilderness. In your wilderness is where your garden grows. That's where the most fruit is going to start coming forth in our lives. So remember I said that the spiritual life is more about subtraction than it is about addition. That's because God so desires this unity with us. He has so beautifully created us in his origin That what we need to do is simply allow him to remove our sin and idolatry. And that's how he can heal us. 
God's not asking William to train and train and train till he can jump higher and farther. God's asking William to take off his lesser self so that the horse with wings that he made him to be can fly. Remember, Hebrews 12 says to remove the weights and the sin, which so easily easily entangles. Yeah, sins, the things we do, but the weights, these things that we have attachments to that keep us pinned down and not turning ourselves toward God. Um, We need to remove these. Subtraction will then lead to multiplication. John of Damascus blew me away with this quote. John of Damascus, you may, we, we talk about him every now and then. He's that 8th century, um, it was called a catechist. Or, or a cat, yeah, I think it's catechist. Anyways, he was the one who trained new Christians, the beliefs, and taught them the way of Christianity. So he's really insightful because he was really used to teaching new believers. Here's how he put it. You can really... You, we sometimes so fixate on the fact that we're sinners that we forget that God didn't make us that way. Do you hear me? He didn't make us that way. We made ourselves that way. So what John does, he takes us back to the way God made us and then, and then instructs us from there. Here's what he says. The virtues, and virtues are those characteristics of God, the qualities of God, which we can possess, which we can grow into, right? The, like the Beatitudes, for example, are the Christ virtues. The virtues are natural qualities. Say what? Last I checked, it's not natural for me to love my neighbor as myself. I have to work at these virtues. But here he says, the virtues are natural qualities and are implanted in all by nature and in equal measure, even if we do not all in equal measure employ our natural energies. We were naturally implanted with God's virtues. So he's referring to our creation. Then he says, By transgression, the fall, our sin, we were driven from the natural virtues to the unnatural. What's the unnatural? Sin. We weren't created to live with sin. That's unnatural to the way God made us. But the Lord led us back from the unnatural sin into the natural, his virtues. For this is the meaning of in our image after our likeness. When God made us in his image after his likeness, he made us to be able to partake in his divine nature and his virtues. That was natural. And that still is natural through Christ. So then he says this, and this is where it gets practical for us. What is Lent about? What's the wilderness about? Subtraction, not addition. So he says this, the discipline and trouble of this life were not designed as a means of our attaining virtue as if it was foreign to our nature, but rather the discipline and trouble of this life is to enable us to cast aside the evil that was foreign and contrary to our nature. 
So the reason we have disciplines, prayer and fasting and worshiping as a body together on certain days of the week and other serving your neighbor and loving and doing works of service that are not necessarily what you want to do. The reason we have these spiritual disciplines is not because we're trying to add godliness to our lives. God is naturally implanted in us. The Christian who's come to Christ is re-given to us that renewal, that the natures and the, the virtues of God within us are there. The reason we're praying and doing these Christian things is so that we can remove the sins and our attachments to the world and the creation to get those off of us so that the natural can start to shine forth. We're trying to lose the unnatural in our endeavors. So again, I'll say, the discipline and trouble of this life were not designed as a means of our attaining virtue, which was as if it was foreign to our nature, but to enable us to cast aside the evil that was foreign and contrary to our nature. Then he uses this illustration. Just as our laboriously removing from steel the rust which is not natural to it, but acquired through neglect, we reveal the natural brightness of the steel. So... A sword rusts. The rust is not natural. It's not how it was made. But what you got to do is remove the rust and now the brightness of the steel of the sword is shining forth. This is what our Christian life is about. And this is why the wilderness is necessary. We need the rust scraped off. We need subtraction. And we will find the blessed, eternal, infinite multiplication blossoming. Gardens grow, but they grow in the wilderness. So what we should do uh, practically to guide ourselves in this way of living is we should follow John, the forerunner's example. He's here as the voice in the wilderness. And you notice like there's these, these details in chapter 3, verse 4 that are like, why? who cares about what he's wearing? Nowhere else in like almost in the whole Bible. <laughs> there's not many places where we are given detail what people wear. The clothing being pointed out is a message. The diet. How many times in the Bible do you see a character described by what he eats and by what he wears? Yet John is. So pay attention to those details. So in 3 verse 4, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, Yes, his garments were just like Elijah the prophet. So on one hand, this is God saying, this is a prophet of the school of Elijah. Hear him. Um, But also, we have a detail here in combination with his diet that speaks of simplicity. Speaks of simplicity. So John doesn't wake up in a nice mansion Oh, I got to clean all this. Got to take the trash out, sweep, and tell the kids to clean their rooms. And, well, he's not married, apparently. Uh, don't know who would be married to this man, the way he's described. But just kidding. <laughs> um, You know, but he's not, he's not waking up to stuff, right? That's, that needs to be managed. He's waking up in the wilderness, and he's right on the job. He's right there by the river, right? Um, he's not waking up and saying, ooh, is today a navy blue suit day or is it a black suit day? And should I go with Hugo Boss or should I go with... <laughs> you see what advertising does? You only think of one. Um, the other brands. <laughs> uh, should I go... He's not like going there and he's not... Yeah, should I wear Vans with this or should I wear boots with this? Um, he doesn't have these issues. He puts on the camel hair. And the belt. What does he do the next day? Camel hair and the belt. And the next day, 
camel hair, and the belt. <laughs> I love it. This is simplicity. Now, this is, not, this is not the Bible advocating you to have one outfit. This is advocating simplicity. Let's not worry too much about the stuff that we surround ourselves with. What is necessary to do what God's called us to do? You guys might remember, and I'll recall this because I thought it was just very touching, uh, when John Wisner was sharing on our Great Cloud of Witnesses Sunday, um, when like four of us shared about a Christian historical figure that has meant something to us. He shared about, um, oh, I don't, Eugenia? No. Zinia Petersburg. No, what was it? Yeah. Oh, I thought it was St. Basil's sister. Yeah. So anyways, he shared so a, a woman who lived with minimal items. We will fight about it later. <laughs> uh, and But John, remember how he told his own personal story from that? Like how he was way too occupied. I can say this because he shared it with you already, so I can say this. Uh, he, he was way too occupied with his image and his clothing. And like God convicted him through that to really pare down what he owns. Um, now, it doesn't have to be clothing. It can be any object in our lives. Maybe we have too many subscription services online. And that's one of those traps, right? Like you have a free subscription to this and then like eventually rolls over and you're paying for it. Like, oh, but I like this show. And then I have this one too. I like this one. Like maybe gradually you've kept adding them on. It's like, oh, they're giving me a deal right now. Uh, And then before you know it, like I'm paying as much as I used to pay for cable. And I thought I was saving. Um, Like maybe it's just paring down on that or the shows we watch. Like, do we really need news every single night? Or every single day. Or maybe it's how much time we spend on YouTube or on the internet. Or it's... You can go down the list here. It's just about simplifying. And this is how we... This is how we participate in wilderness living is by simplifying. And this is what Lent is about. This is why I obnoxiously encourage the church to fast through Lent because it's about simplifying, whether it be food or stuff. And then that obviously leads us to the other part. John ate locusts and honey. Now... As far as I can figure, these are the two things he ate because these were the two things that were in abundance in the wilderness. And they would actually give him a decent diet. Um, Locusts actually would give you a lot of protein and honey would actually give you some nutrients. Raw, unfiltered honey is actually incredibly healthy. Just the stuff you squeeze out of the honey bear is very different than actually natural honey. Mm -hmm. So, um, So he's, but this is what he's eating. He's limiting, right? He's not, he's not like every day stressing out about, ooh, oh, the spread, what can I have? Or what's the ingredients in that and that? And, and like just obsessing over healthful dieting or whatever. Like he's really just simplifying it down to this is what I need. This is what I need. And so everything that John's doing is simplification. And what's cool about simplification is I, I think we can actually find more satisfaction in Christ. The full soul loads honey. The soul that's cluttered with life is like, eh, Jesus is cool, but I mean, he's just kind of humming in the background. That's what that proverb's saying. But to the hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. Yeah, if we're not filled with Christ, we're going to find ourselves filling ourselves with everything else. Such deprivation can lead us to satisfaction. Such subtraction can lead us to unification with Christ. I don't know about you, but that seems like what we're made for. And that seems like we will be thriving and flourishing the way he meant us to be if we're willing to endure the wilderness a little bit. So I want to close with one more quote from John of the cross, 
who had such a beautiful way of describing the Israelites complaining about manna. Why did they complain about the manna? I sort of alluded to it, but the way he says it. Such food, the manna, the manna gave them no pleasure. For the reason why the children of Israel received not the sweetness of all foods that was contained in the manna was that they would not reserve their desire for it alone. What else did they want? Well, they wanted the stuff in Egypt, but remember what else they asked for? Give us meat. And when they had it, what did they do? It did not satisfy them. Because the manna is what God wanted them to have. So he continues. So that they failed to find in the manna all the sweetness and strength that they could wish, not because it was not contained in the manna, but because they desired some other thing. What he's saying is the manna failed to satisfy them, not because the manna didn't have what it needed to satisfy them. The manna didn't satisfy them because they desired something else while they're eating it. It was their hearts that made the manna dissatisfactory to them. And we need to remember, if, 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 uh, if we had um, Tyler continually reading in John 6, goes from feeding of those people with the bread to Jesus saying, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. And then he says, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no share in me. Because what Christ is doing is he's associating himself as the manna that God has given to us. We live in the wilderness, even though we have seasons which are more wilderness-like than others. This is our life as a Christian, being stripped of the things that don't save us to hunger for the one who does save us and be renewed by him. And he is our manna. And if we find Christ undesirable, it is because we have found something else more desirable. It's not a deficiency in Christ. It's a distraction in our heart. And if we will allow ourselves to be stripped and laid bare and live in the rugged, open exposure of the wilderness, we will find Christ sweeter than he's ever been. We will find him more sufficient than we thought he could be. The problem does not lie in him. The problem lies in our distracted hearts. We must remove stuff. The Pharisees add and add and add rules and ways to be religious. We need to just remove, simplify, and receive the manna that has come to us. And so, rather blessedly, we get to eat the manna in a moment. Um, but let's pray and partake together. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, now and ever, and into ages of ages. Amen.